opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and also now live on 104.9 FM. Um, We also live stream to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Um, And be sure to check out our website so you can see who's in our lineup and some of the other great things that we have going on uh, with Women to Watch. I am uh, real excited this afternoon and and truly honored to welcome to the show a very special guest. Her name is Nancy Hogshed Maycar, and Nancy is the CEO of Champion Women. She is also a three-time gold medalist at the 1984 Olympics where she was a world class swimmer. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. Where are you calling from, by the way? I'm calling from Jacksonville, Florida. Very nice. Very nice. How is it down there? Oh, my gosh. It's probably 70 degrees today. Okay. It's kind of spooky how warm it is this spring. Yeah. And, of course, we're freezing (laughs) up um, here in Philadelphia, but I think it's going to be the last last winter hurrah before we, we hit spring, I hope. Um, so listen, I want to um, get right into this interview and, and start with your background and your upbringing. I think, um, you know, the work that you've been doing most recently is something that's uh, truly remarkable and, of course, very, very well needed. Um, but as always, we start at the very beginning of everyone's story. And um, mm-hmm. so I want to hear a little bit about your growing up years. I, I know that you were born in Iowa City, Iowa, mm-hmm. um, but your family moved soon after that to Florida uh, when you were young. First of all, so what was the reason for that move? My dad was a professor. He was an orthopedic surgeon, and he was in academics, and he got a position at the uh, university. At, um, University of Florida, Florida Medical School. Okay. So we we moved down to Florida, and uh, but you know we definitely brought our Midwestern roots with us, which is you know the value of like hard work and you know you know there's usually not a lot of um, you know there's no bragging or anything like that uh, with when you're from Iowa. So. <laughs> That's good. That's a nice quality. Um, yeah. So how old were you then when you, oh, I was when young. you moved? I was like uh, two or four years old. Oh, okay. So do you remember young, that yeah. or no? Well, the only reason I remember Iowa is because all of our relatives lived there, and so we were back constantly, mm-hmm. right? So <clears throat> my favorite aunts and uncles, my children right now, are named after some of them. So, oh, that's so nice. It, you know, the, the, our Iowa roots were always a big part of our lives. Yeah. Because it was both sides of my family, both my mom's and my dad's side were. Were Iowans. Now, were there any swimmers other, you know, before you? No. 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 I started to swim because my parents bought a boat and they just wanted to drown proof my brother and I. My <laughs> sister was too young. Right. And uh, yeah, no great beginnings. Um, but I, I just, 
I got really lucky. My first coach ever was has been the head coach now at University of Texas for the past, I don't know, uh, probably 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Eddie Reese. And he's funny. <laughs> and yeah. he's, um, he really knew stroke mechanics even at a young age, even at like 2021, 20, which is probably how old he was when he was working with me. And, um, and <clears throat> but he, even though you know, I was young and just a regular old age group swimmer. I wasn't a little bit better than my peers. I really was a lot better than my peers. And so, so how old were you? I know that, you know, when you live in Florida, m- more often than not, you know, children down there, they swim. You know, um, yeah. I have cousins yeah, who sure. grew up in Miami and they were swimmers, you know, almost by default. How old were you when you started? Did your mom and dad start that right when you moved there? So you were, you know three, four, five? Like I or... knew how to swim, but as far as, yeah, as far as like being on the team yeah. was when I was seven okay. when I started. But, you know, even like in the, like when I started when I was seven, like it was just summer swimming. I didn't, I didn't swim year round, I think until I was about 11. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, again, I just can't stress enough how my coach made it really fun. My mom actually went to him. I think I was 10. I was close to breaking a state record. And he said, she said, um, Hey, if you push Nancy, I bet she can break this record. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, if I push her, she will quit. So we're oh. not going to do that. And I never broke any records, uh, you know, when any eight young age group records. But I, but I stayed in the sport, and mm-hmm. I loved it. And uh, you know, swimming is a very social sport, and it's a lot of fun. And so, you know, that that's what I mostly remember about my young swimming was really good mechanics, really good feel for the water, really good technique, but not a lot of like, you know, you can make kids faster if you have them go back and forth and back and forth all day, but it's really a great way to burn them out. Well, that's, so that's so interesting to me because I think from the knowledge that I have about um, friends, family who were swimmers, they really Mm -hmm. seem to be pushed. Um, You know, it's Mm -hmm. a tear up you know, at the crack of dawn and you're doing your laps and then you go to school and then it's laps again after. Um, so -hmm, it's interesting to mm -hmm. me that you became a gold medalist, but that your coach, you remember as someone who, you know, was careful not to do that. Push too hard. Well, he was careful not to do that at, you know, age, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. But when I got older, no, no, no. I mean, of course. Okay, it changed then. I I was up at 445 in the morning and we swam from 530 to 730 and it was, 400 laps. Wow. And then during school, we either lifted weights or ran on alternate days. And then it was two and a half more hours after school of swimming. Okay. So, no, this is not something one gets into lightly. But, you know, as you're older, you can, your body's able to handle it. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, you're mentally able to handle it, um, you know, right. So, but yeah, no, I mean, it, I don't mean to suggest that I was able to win three gold medals in the Olympics without <laughs> without practicing a lot of hard, 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 mm-hmm. hard work. Yeah, yeah. So um, th- let me ask you: Did you ever have a day where you said, I- "I'm just sick of this. I'm going to quit"? Isn't that funny? You I know, never. that's the number one question little kids ask all the time. Yeah. And what I say to them is like, "Well, of course, of course, <laughs> yeah. Of course. There's that, bad days. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. And. And, you know, I tell, I tell this story about how that my coach, in order to break up the monotony of swimming in pools, had to swim up. There's this beautiful river in Florida. It's a spring-fed. It's called the Ichnatuckney. 
And families ran inner tubes and sit down in them and get an extra one with, you know, a cooler with sandwiches and pop or something in them. And, and, you know, you float down in beautiful overhanging trees and the green grass. It's gorgeous. Well, my coach made us swim up this thing against the current. Wow. And so um, what is normally you've got rules and etiquette on the sort of, you know, when two people whack hands, who says they're sorry to who, like none of that applied. And so uh, this is a thundering herd of swimmers. It's hard to see because the silt gets kicked up from the bottom. This is really cold water, and this is where bugs live. So there's, you know, women's swimsuits are kind of cut with a V in the front, and, you know, we're talking an entomology lesson when you took your swimsuit off. Oh my gosh. This is right. my worst nightmare, Nancy. <laughs> yeah. I know. Mine wow. too. Mine yeah. too. But you did and it. Wow. What, I, what, what, what I did was I just took my bad mood with me to swim practice and, right, and didn't mm. try to sort of pretend that it didn't, that I, that I wanted to be there because I really didn't. Mm. And frankly, nobody else did either, and everybody's in a bad mood. And um, so I, um, you know, but, but I always made sure that like my commitment was bigger than wanting to be on a good mood on any one particular day. So mm. on any one particular day, what I say like, hmm, today, 800 laps. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, um, but, but I, I really wanted to be in the Olympics. I wanted to be the best in the world. And I really wanted to see how far I could take this talent God gave me. Mm. And I, um, and, and so that was sort of right. And, and if you think about like, I'm a parent now and, you know, my, my dreams for my kids are more important than any one particular day. Like, I think if you ask any parent, like, do you want to get up at three o'clock in the morning and catch barf and have to change the seat four times? And right. Yeah, every yeah, parent has yeah, those stories, that's right? right. Yes. Do you want, no, virtually nobody wants to do that, but you know, you love your kids and you want to be a good parent. And that's more important than, uh, you know, wanting to have it always be, you know, roses and whatnot. And I honestly think that that's one of the best things that sports teaches kids is just how to sort of tough it out through the long term. That's you know, a great so example. Um, yeah, what a great example. I mean, really, it's about commitment for the, for, you know, the vision, the dream, the long-term goal. Exactly. Right. You know, right. Yeah. Right. And I think everybody, you know, it's, you can kind of make it more tangible in a sports kind of sense, but, mm-hmm. it, but if you want to go to medical school or if you want to, if you want to just, you know, make a difference in your community, I don't care what your goal is. Mm-hmm. There are going to be times that you are, you, you better make sure that your commitment is bigger than wanting to be in a good mood. Because people are like, oh, is swimming fun? Well, yeah, there were definitely really, really fun times. But what, is that why I was there? No, it was not why I was there. That's right. Um, yeah, so fortunately, because if, if that had been my goal, first of all, no, nobody swims eight laps a day because they want to have fun. For fun. Just, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, um, so, you know, I, just keeping the, the reason why you're there and what's, what's important to you uh, to keep that paramount. Because mm-hmm. sometimes people say to me, oh, Nancy, you really sacrificed a lot so that you could be in the Olympics. And I say, I didn't sacrifice anything. And that my friends who didn't, uh, they didn't, it, it wasn't that they didn't swim. It was that like, they weren't really committed to anything. They sacrificed whatever their dreams were. They sacrificed it all. They, mm. 
um, by by not doing anything, right? So they hung out at the Pizza Hut, and they had a lot of fun at the Pizza Hut. But, um, you know, they made choices, and I made choices, and I got very different things out of my choices than they did. And um, I, the, the, who lives with the most regret? Trust me, them, not me. Mm. Yeah, it's a whole different way so. to look at that. Um, you know, that yeah. phrase about sacrificing. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So tell me about you were you were a champion swimmer at Episcopal, and then you went to Gainesville High School. What was the reason for the move to another high school? Well, when I was 14 years old, I was number one in the world for all women. And then my coach left. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, so here I was. Now, at this point, I'm 15 years old, and, uh, you know, w- w- what am I going to do? I mean, I could swim at a lesser level. I can... Um, uh, you know, right. But, but really there was, there was really no other option. And I have to say to my mother's credit, she had to eat a lot of crow because she would always say like, no child of mine would ever live away from home. Mm. And, oh, uh, okay. You know, she had to, she, it was not an enjoyable, you know, it was not, you know, to let her child leave home and go to another city and train was not what she had in mind as being a parent, like what she wanted for herself as a parent. I don't think it's right. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, she, she knew that, you know, I was, I was just as dedicated as could be, and she really wanted to do anything she could to make it happen for me. Okay. So, yeah, so I moved away from home. I moved to Gainesville, which is only an hour and a half away. Mm-hmm. And um, um, Was that in so 1980? I actually graduated from Gainesville High School. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yep. And lived with some families and lived in an apartment with other college uh, students. So tell yeah. me, tell me about experience. the emotions of that. You know, a young that's young, and, you know, it's yeah, not easy, it right? It's not easy to move yeah. somewhere completely different and be with strangers. Um, yeah. yeah. What were your emotions during that time? And, again, were you uh, – and perhaps it was just the commitment and the focus to the, your dream. Well, definitely, yeah, I was definitely, you know, committed and focused. Um, at the same time, like, so my, I've talked to my parents about it since then, and what, what here's what we would have done differently is I thought that if, God forbid, something happened that I, that they were going to yank me home. So I sort of cut off my own normal source of support. So there was, you know, this was the 70s at the University of Florida. It was a big drug culture. I was not part of that. But I right there was stuff going on around me that mm-hmm. like no 15, 16, 17 year old should be dealing with, and I was worried again that if I went to my parents that they would say, well, let's wait, that's crazy, we're right. right, oh, so they'd run and get you, it, right? It sort of yeah, in, yeah. In retrospect, if they that what they said is like we should have just told you we support you no matter what, so that I would still be able to call them and and get support and whatnot from them. Uh, 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 when it was when when I needed it, um, um, you know I think that everybody would agree it's probably not the best it, in terms of you know if if you can not live away from home that's the best thing to do. Um, but you know there again there, there was just no way that I was going to stay there and not um, I had already been to you know traveled throughout the world I had already been to. Egypt and Greece and China and France and, you know, competing all over. And I had already, um, you know, been a world champion. <clears throat> and the idea, like, what you, you're just going to quit, 
right? And for most people, there is not the best facilities and coach that's just right around the corner. It does happen, Mm -hmm. and that's great when it does, but, mm, you know, sometimes you really need to uh, find the best coach and the best program that's just not not where it is that you live. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I think we all, as young people, had moments where we were uh, scared um, about a situation or, you know, place that we were. And we did keep it from mom and dad because for whatever reason, we still needed or wanted to be there. Um, and so that's interesting that, you know, you did that. You just, I guess you just, you know, um, worked your way through it was let me ask you this was there someone there um acting as a mentor for you at that time if you were not leaning on mom and dad um at moments of insecurity yeah i had a great coach randy reese and his wife ann reese also sort of pulled me under her wing and were very very good to me Mm -hmm. i mean at one point like i was too young to drive so uh, to get from swim practice, excuse me, to get from school to swim practice on time, she had to pick me up from school and drop me off at practice. Um, and then one of the other swimmers took me back where I was living, right? So, you know, yeah, no, I mean, people did care about me and, you know, you know, I think thought more of me than just, you know, I'm somebody's meal ticket or somebody's, you know, I'm, you know, you know, check out the talent. Right. Right. I think people uh, sort of thought more than that, if you will, thought mm-hmm. more of that than me. So, no, I, I did. But, again, you know, there's just nothing like having mom there. But, you know, every once in a while, like, I would call home and I'd be crying about something that happened. And mm-hmm. my mom would get in the car. And, but you know, she had, you know, and my my sister was at, at, um, at still living at home. And, you know, my, obviously my dad's there in Jacksonville. So, you know, she – she tried, but, you know, she had to be in Jacksonville for most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So um, you, you received a swim scholarship uh, from Duke University. And in the fall of 1981, um, you were there at Duke. And, you know, this, again, I don't think we can tell your story, Nancy, without mentioning this part of your life and something mm-hmm. that happened to you while at Duke. You were um, running between campuses and you were raped by, uh, and I'll say a stranger, which is uh, what I have read. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Let's hear from you that experience in particular. What I'm curious, and I guess most people would be curious about, is if that experience in that moment is something that has led directly to the work that you're doing today. That's a great question. Um, well, first, let me just go over and, you know, sort of talk a little bit about what happened, and then I'll mm-hmm. get to sort of my professional work now and okay. what it is that I do. Yep. So <clears throat> um, I did make the 1980 Olympic team. I did go to college, and my sophomore year in college, as, as you said, I was, I was out running and was raped. And um, <clears throat> it shattered my worldview of two things. Number one is, you know, good things happen to good people, and my sense of God was that if I was good, you know, he would take care of me. And it shattered my idea that um, I understood that there was sexism out there in the world. Uh, I just did not think it was going to affect me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just thought that I personally, Nancy Hogshead, was going to achieve out of it. That uh, Mm -hmm. 
that I would be able to rise above that. Uh, and, and this was something that happened that really, frankly, brought me to my knees. I had terrible what now today we would say is PTSD. Mm-hmm. I had a difficult time sleeping. I felt fundamentally unsafe. I felt um, that at any minute anybody could rape me anywhere that and that there was nothing I could do about it I um I had a very hard time sleeping and I had this crazy hat um sort of um you know what do you call it uh, you know when somebody has like the repetitive disorder you know they do something over and over and over again yes. so OCD uh, for me I would uh, check the locks to make sure that they were locked mm-hmm. and I would get out of bed and check the locks and then I would check the windows and make sure they were locked and then I'd get back in bed now I know that the door and the windows are locked, and yet I couldn't help myself getting out of bed and checking to make sure that the doors and then the windows were locked. And so, you know, after like a couple of days of this, you realize that this is really nutty behavior, but two things is, one is I was embarrassed by it. I was, I knew it was nutty, and I, so I didn't want to tell anybody because it was so nutty. And then two is um, um, I... Um, I did, I couldn't stop, right? So even right. N- there was no intellectual talking to myself about, now, Nancy, now you know that the doors are locked and you are safe and nobody can get in here and you're, and you can go to sleep now and you're, you're safe, right? So there's, there was no intellectual thinking that was going to make me safe, feel safe. And, um, and this really went on for quite a while. And, um, <clears throat> uh, and, you know, fortunately for me, uh, it did end. And there were a couple of reasons why it ended. <clears throat> um, uh, I, I actually, uh, I started going out with a guy who was literally the biggest guy on campus. <laughs> and, um, you know, when I stood next to him, he was a little bit socially unacceptable, meaning that, like, he didn't hesitate to get into fights. And he um, was not... Uh, a philosophy that I had grown up with or anything but at that time uh, it was very you know I just felt like I could relax around him and I really felt you know one time somebody were at a party and somebody said hey what do you think about sexual assault on or what do you think about rape on campus and this guy like decked him and I had never seen one person hit another person like that before and as, as much as I knew like man that's crazy there was a part of me that was like, and and in my own personal bodyguard right here. Mm-hmm. You <laughs> and, felt uh, protected. So yeah. you know, it was not like a long-lasting relationship mm-hmm. at all. Uh, actually, pretty short. But in that very short period of time, is I, I, um, you know, was able to be and feel safe, and it really helped. I have to say. Um, and some of my friends, like they still give me a hard time about, like I can't believe you dated Bob Colley. And. Uh, <laughs> and um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I was like, I needed that, and, I, and it helped. And I forgive myself for being with somebody that was, you know, sort of this app. You know, the guy that I dated before then was like a biomedical engineer. <laughs> it was a little different. Yeah, well, it's so, so interesting, um, isn't it, that you, I mean, clearly he, he, you felt protected with him. And if that's what you needed at that time, that was what was supposed to happen. Would you say that? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 That was what was supposed to happen. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm. I am. 
he he actually he died um you know within a year or so after we were together um but you know i've t- talked to his family and i've thanked him and you know he really gave me something that i don't think being around anybody else when I mean, the guy was just he was duke's heavyweight wrestler he was enormous wow. <laughs> and um Right. So not for the rest of my life, but for you know that short time, it really did help. The second thing that really helped was um, uh, Duke uh, uh, bent over backwards for me. So they gave me academic uh, uh, adjustments. I dropped two classes pretty much right away. Then my two finals, I got into two car accidents, bang, bang, right away. And they, because of these car accidents and because I was sort of melting down, they uh, postponed the other two final exams until after we got back from Christmas break. They gave me a special parking pass. I could park wherever I wanted to on campus, um, including, like, where the chaplain parked. Um, I could, they, what else did they do? Oh, they, and I was a full scholarship athlete, and they let me redshirt that year. So I did not have to, I did not have any of the pressures of swimming at all. And that, for me, was a huge it was the first time in my life, uh, you know, since I was 11, that I had swimming had not completely dominated my life. Mm-hmm. And to have that break was really important. And just as important was in about six or eight months was going back to swimming. So when I, I, what, when I went back to swimming, my coach just said, Nancy, all you have to do to get your scholarship is just show up at the meet. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, you know, like I'm going to, you know, this will be great. I won't have to do anything. And then, you know, I won. And I said, well, maybe I should just swim a few practices just so that, you know, I don't embarrass myself. And then, you know, before I know it, of course, I'm, you know, training full time. (laughs) But he kind of knew me, right? He Mm -hmm. knew me well enough that he, he really, there was a present that he gave me. So he used this scholarship to get me back in the water. And when I got back in the water, a couple things is, number one is being all out in sports is an appropriate place to be angry and to kind of use up that emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was swimming, I could scream under the water. I could cry under the water. I could, um, I could get really angry at my rapist and use that to go faster, and um, so, um, and, and it also gave, sort of had me reclaim my own sense of body and my sense that, like, I controlled my destiny and I controlled myself. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, getting back into sports was really, really beneficial, helpful. And then I had some amazing friends. I had my one dear, dear, dear friend, Carrie Conklin. She's, I'm the godmother to her oldest, and I'm, she's the godmother to my oldest child. And, um, you know, she picked me up at the hospital and I stayed with her for months, uh, right afterwards. And she, um, you know, she loves me, and cares about me. And, 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 um, so I, I had some dear, dear friends around me who could listen to it ad nauseum. And I would say one of the great things if, if, um, what I needed and what I appreciated my friends who gave it to me was, is was that my, if my, the friends that could be a catcher's mitt for my pain, who didn't try to alter the pain, didn't try to morph it into something else, didn't try to have me see something interesting, but just got it, 
Mm-hmm. And, th- and I sort of found myself kind of gravitating towards those people who could, you know, it, you really have to, when somebody's going through a trauma, you really have to listen to a lot of crap. And they really did for me. And the people who are there for you at the, when you're down, like, look, I've got tons of friends, like when life is going well and I'm winning in the Olympics and, you know, or I just want a big case, it's not hard to find friends or to have people who, you know, say they care about you then. But, you know, try listening to somebody for a couple hours about, you know, how mad they are at the world that there's this thing called rape out there. And, uh, you know, that'll try anybody's friendship. And, you know, Terry never once said, you know, I'm kind of tired of hearing about that now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> listening. I, listening. And that with was really, really. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm just you're so right about that. Yeah. To have someone who's really just listening and validating your feelings and understanding yeah. is really the best. Yeah. You it know, is it, the best. Yeah. It is such a gift to give to somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a testament to, you know, one of my next question was going to be, how did the university address this? And, and obviously they did all the right things, which is not always the case. Yeah, every, every victim of sexual assault should get what I got. And I think I got it because, number one, is I didn't know my attacker. I hadn't been drinking. And, and, um, I, and it was a very violent attack. So that Duke believed two things. Number one is they believe that it happened. I think a lot of a lot of victims suffer from people just not believing them. That's right. And that's a terrible suffering to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing that they believed in, they believed in the depth of my emotional harm. So it wasn't, nobody said like, Nancy, get over it. Come on. People are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. That's Abe Lincoln. You can just, just get over it. Nobody said that to me. They believed it. They understood it. They gave me, again, all the academic uh, reprieve. They gave me counseling. Um, Yeah, every victim, again, should get what I got in terms of being believed that it happened Mm -hmm. and believed uh, in in whatever trauma it is that somebody has to go through. I've been an expert witness in some cases where after somebody sexually assaulted, the school, rather than lighten up the load, they double up the load. Oh, you're not doing well academically. Here, let, you'll do tutoring sessions on top of this. Oh, you were hurt during your sexual assault. Here, let's go, you'll go to therapy on top of this. And then they yank the scholarship and they, you know, they, they make it really hard. It's not, I, I probably was drinking too much right afterwards, um, was probably, um, you know, and frankly, if you ask Duke, I would tell you that I was not very grateful at the time. I mean, today, I just thank them every chance I get. Yeah. But at the time, I was not, you know, I'm sure it wasn't that much fun to help. I wasn't. I well, wasn't you were suffering. Overly, I mean, yes, like, you were clearly yeah, you know, yeah, suffering yeah, yeah. then. And I try to remember that when I'm talking to somebody in pain is that there, there are usually people who are in pain who are going through, like, you know, if you've got friends like, who lose a baby or they're getting divorced or they, you know, they lose a parent or you're right. But a life trauma is that's not them at their best. And mm-hmm. you just have to listen to them when they're not at their best and just be forgiving when they're not at their best. That's, that's just, right. that's us being human beings and being there for each other. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And it, and really you're, that's not who they are, right? That's not really who, they, really are who they are in, at that time. Um, yeah. Did they catch this person? Nope. 
Nope. And my, my feeling is he had to have left town because, you know, we fought really hard in brush, in like the middle of evergreen trees. And so both of us were pretty beaten up and scraped up. Like we both landed some pretty serious blows. So um, he had to have left town. Um, this is before the days of, uh, you know, DNA or any national database or mm. anything like that. Right. So, alerts. Um, you know how we have alerts today that go yeah, out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. Right. Well, Nancy, so, listen. But, but again, like. But, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that uh, the Duke police, uh, again, you know, they, they, they and I'm, I'm so grateful there's a generation of feminists that came before me that have not made it to Africa, South America, into Muslim country, to some countries where uh, if a woman is, is sexually assaulted, that she's expected to marry this person. Uh, it's never, it's seen as a shame upon the whole family. And so there's a whole generation of feminists that came before, you know, in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s and 70s, that, 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 I was able to walk in and get a lot of help, um, and and I want to be able to do that for the next generation of sexual assault victims, of to be that for them when they walk in, when they did know the person that that sexually assaulted them, when they had been drinking, when they were wearing a squishy skirt, when they were, right? I mean, they they have the same emotional trauma afterwards as right. I did. That's right. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Those are not excuses. Um, listen, we're right. going to we're going to take a break, Nancy. And when we come back, I want to uh, get into your um, leaving and training for the Olympics. We'll be right back. Awesome. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. I'm pleased to announce the opening of the region's newest, most innovative gynecology practice in the Philadelphia area in mid-November, Montgomery Gynecology. Led by Dr. Hima Janogada in a welcoming boutique-style setting, she and her team are committed to providing the highest standard of cutting-edge care without losing the personal touch that is so very important in today's world. With a particular interest in minimally invasive surgical options, Dr. Hema completed advanced training in robotic surgery and is one of only two surgeons in Montgomery County who performs this highly specialized single-site robotic surgery. 
For more information on the opening of this exciting new practice in the convenient Plymouth Meeting location, go to www.montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-3411. That's montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-3411 to make an appointment today. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and 104.9 Live FM and also live streaming to womentowatch.net. I'm so grateful this afternoon to have a guest with me who is – truly inspirational and and sharing um, her life story with us so openly. Again, her name is Nancy Hogshed May Carr, and she's CEO of Champion Women, which we're we're definitely going to talk about the advocacy for uh, women and girls who are athletes um, and coaches. And she's also a three-time gold medalist in swimming from the 1984 Olympics. Um, so, Nancy, let's, you know, pick up where we left off. You left Duke in the spring of 1983 to train full-time for the Olympics. Um, and one of my, my first question was, at that time, was that, did you feel a sense of relief leaving uh, Duke and the campus where, you know, this, this um, trauma happened to you? No, no. not at okay. all. I was going towards something i you know i made the 1980 olympic team we boycotted the united states did so Mm -hmm. i didn't get to go it was something i'd always wanted to do when my coach gave me this opportunity to keep my scholarship and just show up at the meets it's like a ball that bounced back into my hand i want i like like i had let go of that dream and it's all sudden there it was right back Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) right back uh yeah so so no i was leaving um in order to be able to go train. I knew that I wasn't, uh, frankly, smart enough to get the grades I wanted to and train at a world-class level, and I wasn't a good enough athlete to be able to make the Olympic team and still um, be the kind of student I wanted to be. So I Mm -hmm. needed to just do one or the other for about a year and a half. And so I just swam Mm -hmm. and uh, moved out to California and uh, trained out there. And, and, uh yeah, and 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 I have to say that uh, um, I I had fantastic teammates, and uh, it really makes a difference when you're training and it's your choice to do it. And you you know I gave was giving up a lot of to in order to be able to do it, um, um, as opposed to kind of you know there was a little bit when I was still in high school, as hard as I worked and as much as I loved it. Um, you know, I felt a little bit of a victim of my talent, you know, like, Oh God, why do I have to be so talented? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but with this new adventure of going out to California, I really didn't have that going on at all. And Mm -hmm. it was, it was nice. And I also kind of knew there was an end point. Like I wasn't going to be doing this my entire life. I had a year and a half train as hard as you can for a year and a half Mm -hmm. and see how good you can be. Yeah. And so that's what I did. Yeah. Well, it's always, you know, wonderful to be running towards something as opposed to running away from from something. So, Isn't it? yeah, that's yeah. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, so I wanted to ask you about during one of the races, um, you suffered a bronchial spasm. 
which led to a mm-hmm. diagnosis of asthma. And so that was a, you know, a big pivot all of a sudden, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me what made you decide to become an advocate and, and educate others, you know, take that, that now this brand new diagnosis of asthma and uh, actually turn it into advocacy with um, uh, the foundation. Sure, sure. Um, um, well, uh, so um, it was my last race of the Olympics. I had already won three golds and a silver, and I typically had a hard time swimming in cold, in cold air or dry air. And uh, and this was sort of the culmination of lots and lots of races. And uh, so I I swam, uh, you know, my last race, and there was a doctor on deck, and he said, "Do you always cough like that after you compete?" And I was all proud of myself, yes, I do. And he said, just go get on a treadmill. Just go see what happens. And I did, and that's when the diagnosis came back. And sort of looking back, it kind of all makes sense. Uh, this was, um, you know, I, um, had, I had always coughed a lot. I, um, I got bronchitis easily, what I thought was bronchitis at the time. Um, I didn't compete as well, usually in California or Arizona, as I did in uh, indoor pools or uh, in more humid states. And those are all, that's a classic exercise-induced asthma. And uh, so, but I, um, what I, I did, I, I, I was an ad, asthma advocate for probably about a decade. And um, I worked with one of the pharmaceutical firms and every year we would plan, like, what, what are we going to do this year? This year we'll do winter asthma, and I would just snow skiing. And <laughs> and then we'd do inner city asthma, and I'd go to the best cities in the country. And then we'd do um, anyway, you know, all all different sort of strategies on, on uh, you know, how do you, how do you allow students to be able to carry their inhalers with them in school instead of having to go to the school nurse. And we'd have all kinds of great projects. And um, But what I saw is I was doing a number of things. I was commentating. I was doing that. I was giving motivational speeches. I was the president of the Women's Sports Foundation. And the thing that I liked the most, it wasn't so much asthma as the fact that, like, I was an advocate. I really liked that part of what it was that I was doing. So of all the things that I did, it was sort of having a goal and a vision and, and, uh, and uh, sort of speaking up on behalf of somebody else who may need it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like part teacher, part, um, you know, um, speaking about a particular point of view, right, that say I'm making it up, you know, kids should be able to take their inhalers with them uh, um, in school or, um, you know, asthma should not just be a de facto reason for getting out of PE that that as Max should expect that they should be able to do PE. And if, they, they, if they're not, then they really need to go work with their physician and figure out what to do because, you know, if 10% of the Olympic team has it, then, you know, you can too. So, um, so from that perspective, I, uh, I, you know, sort of working, doing all this work with asthmatics really gave me a taste of, huh, well, what if I applied that over here in the law? So, um, um, so, so that's what I ended up doing. Was I, um, you know, went to law school and started working uh, with, um, you know, bringing lawsuits that dealt with girls and women being able to participate in sports and employees 
not getting treated the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the fact that yeah. you, so you had this desire. First of all, did, were you always that kind of a person? Would you say as a, even as a young girl that you, you know, were an advocate for friends that maybe were not being treated, you know, properly in school by teachers or, you know, or do you think that's something that came after, um, what happened to you yeah, my, in college? Yeah, my parents say that, yeah, like, you know, like w- sort of doing what was fair. And they tell this story when I was like four years old. And, um, you know, my parent, we, we we were packed up and we were moving. And my dad forgot to leave a pillow out for him to be able. So he goes into my brother's room and he takes my brother's pillow. And I, I apparently, four, all four years old, like marched into his room and was like, my brother needs his pillow. <laughs> 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 so it was part of your like DNA. Like, we'll okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, so here's what's interesting. So I, yeah, I think I always kind of had a little bit of that mm-hmm. in me. Good. Um, and then to to uh, to um, I really owe this huge debt of gratitude for somebody. Uh, her name is um, Donna Deverona, and Donna um, uh, was an Olympic champion back in the 1964 Olympics you know, a generation ahead of me. And uh, she came to the Olympic team and said, you guys are, you don't even know what's coming around the corner. You're about to become famous. And, you know, of course we loved hearing that, but but then she goes, she goes, and what are you going to do with it? Like, so I had never thought of that. Like, what was I going to do with it? Like, what, what? I, I just wanted to win. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I sort of that like there was like a period at the end of that sentence, and there was no launching on to something else. Hmm. And uh, so, but like I kind of got it that being an Olympic champion allowed me to be an advocate in certain ways, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, right, so she really put that idea in my head, and. And it stuck. Yeah. Yeah, what a great question, <laughs> yeah. and and the, and the fact that you remember that. What are you going to do with it? You yeah. know, we all were presented with opportunities and privileges and experiences, and uh, that's a great question. Uh, so that's a great thing to say to our kids. For all I of think, us, it's right? so true. Yeah. 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 Like when you get a degree, like what are you going to do with it? When yeah. You get a when you something wonderful happens to you. I don't. You know, somebody gives you. You know, this wonderful feeling when they give you roses. Like, okay, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, yeah. That's you a know? great – I'm writing yeah. that down as we speak. That's a great, great question. Just oh. to, to make people reflect and be thoughtful about, you know, their next step. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love mm-hmm. the fact that you mm-hmm. – so obviously you started to feel this this pull towards um, advocacy for women and girls in, in athletics, and you certainly um, were far qualified to do that. And you realized that in order to be effective – um, that you needed to understand the law and, and of course, all the issues mm-hmm. surrounding Title IX, um, which mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in 1972 is an amendment prohibiting discrimination based on gender under education programs that receive financial assistance from the government. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So in, in other words, I could say that a little bit simpler. Okay. If a, if a school receives tax dollars, right, okay. yep. all of us pay taxes. If they receive any of those tax dollars, they cannot discriminate based on sex. Not only can they not discriminate based on whether or not somebody's male or female, but they also cannot discriminate based on race, color, national origin. They can't discriminate based on ability and also age discrimination. So there are actually four statutes that are are uh, all work hand in hand, if you will, to um, 
to, uh, to, to make sure that there's not discrimination in our educational institutions. Okay. So, but, so, but, but the, the, the area that I'm, that I specialize the most in, you know, when, when Donna Deverone asked me, what are you going to do with it? It, it, um, uh, you know, it was applying to, um, for, for me, I think I could have been a lawyer in lots of different ways, but having been an Olympic champion, I can do the most as, as an advocate for girls and women in sports. And that's good because there's an awful lot of need there. So right. in every measurable way, women lag behind men in sports. So whether it's opportunities to play, whether it's how they get treated, whether it's scholarship dollars, whether it's, um, you know, the, 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 the coaching, the what in every measurable way women lose as compared with boys and men. So there's lots of work to do. Yeah. So can you, all right, let's talk about what, what are the, you know, very targeted efforts that Champion Women as an organization mm -hmm. um, is doing today? Sure. So um, I could I could go around suing schools, uh, requiring them to be in compliance with Title IX. And in my lifetime, I could probably do maybe 40, maybe 60 schools for the rest of my life. And that would be it. And would I make a major difference in the numbers? And the answer is no, um, because that's only 40 or 60 schools, and there's 5,000 of them. Just and that's just higher ed. That doesn't include high school. So. If you so, I was looking at what kind of projects can Champion Women do that will affect the bigger picture. What can Champion Women do that will get change to scale? Mm -hmm. And so, 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 so those are the we try to find projects that are about that. So, just as an example, one of our projects is we're writing letters to the top 52 schools in the country that are the most out of compliance with Title IX. The number one school is UNC Chapel Hill. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I went to Duke. <laughs> but Chapel Hill needs to add 248 women to its athletic department. Um, just a real quick primer on the law. A school can, can pick one of three different ways to show that they're offering enough sports opportunities. So a school can say, uh, we have the same student-athlete population as our student body population. So in other words, if there's a 50-50 student body population, our student-athlete population is 50-50. Um, that's one way. Another way is they can say, well, you know, we're not there yet, but we have a history of continuous improvement for girls and women in sports. That's way number two, usually called a prong, prong two. And prong three is if a school can say, you know, we don't have any unmet demand. We don't have any, anybody knocking at our door that wants to participate in sports. So yeehaw, we're good to go. Um, so, uh, um, and, and what we do in these letters is we show you're not in proportionality. You do not have. You can get. You can go onto a, a website if you just type in EADA onto your uh, uh, web browser. Uh, you'll get Equity and Athletics Disclosure Act, and it says cutting edge tool website. And uh, it'll give you all kinds of data, participation and how much they spend on recruiting and scholarships and how much they spend on coaching for the male, men's and women's teams and assistant coaches. And it's a really data-rich uh, uh, website. And as, but we pull 10 years worth of data from there, and we show that the school is not, it does not have a history of adding up 
sports opportunities for women. And then uh, the schools that we picked are all under 5% of their student body is playing sports. If that's the case, there's really no way that they're not going to have lots of both boys and girls, men and women, who want to be able to play sports that are not being given an opportunity. So, so we send them a legal memo, and then we have like a, you know, kind of the the executive summary. And uh, so my research assistant, uh, which we we always need, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, between two and three research assistants um, to help with our various projects. I'm only describing one of them here. Is uh, they find out who at the school should these letters go to, and they look at as broad everybody from the head of Pan Hellenic to the head of the Giving Alliance to the Women's Alumni Association to write a, you, obviously it goes to the president, the athletic director, and the general counsel, mm-hmm. but we want to look broader in the school, like who is going to invest their own uh, political capital to create more opportunities for women in sports. And uh, anyway, so so they're busy. They find out who in all these different campuses who that person could be and uh, then we send it off. Okay. And yep. uh, so the idea is like, you know, my, my research assistants and I can do a lot of those. We can do hundreds of those letters um, and much more so than we could possibly do in a lawsuit. Right, right. Um, I, yeah. I, I wanted to read a quote um, that I read, um, and it was said by Christine Grant, uh, former women's athletic director at the University of Iowa, about you. She said the creation of an organization with a laser beam focus on equity for women in sport is long overdue and deserves the wholehearted support of all parents who believe in equity for all girls and women. And um, it's a wonderful, you know, testament to you. And it made me wonder Mm. about what kind of assistance and support you have had from parents in your efforts. Um, yeah, I mean, especially if I help them, then, you know, but, but, <laughs> but, you know, we want champion women, you know, we want to be able to help the, the people who need us the most can afford us the least, I mean, right? If it was just, if I was a lawyer and you're just paying me, right? So our donors, like they want me to do, uh, be on the radio with you to talk about how important gender equity is, not just for girls, but also for boys and how important it is that they see that that the leaders of their school treat boys and girls equally. Mm-hmm. And, um, right, so that they, um, and, um, um, you know, and it's not just even for, for non-athletes. I mean, this is one of the few areas where we sex segregate between boys and girls. And so it's even that much more important to show that when we sex segregate that we treat boys and girls, men and women, equally. And um, uh, so I would say our donors come from all over the place. I mean, it is we have a lot of coaches mm-hmm. who, who really are up and sort of playing front and center, and they really get it about what kind of a situation that it is. Right. So uh, we've gotten some pretty big-ticket uh, um donations, uh, big ticket, you know, people who've given us a nice hunk at a time. That's always the, <laughs> the type that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be spending my time raising money. Um, that's, that's not fun, number one. And number two is it really doesn't get the job done. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, uh, yeah, no, we've, we, we, we have gotten some really great support. Good. And, you know, I, I, I also read that some people believe that this increase in athletic opportunity for girls has come at the expense of boys' athletics. Can you explain mm-hmm. that to me, how that, you know, and is that yeah, true? Yeah, sometimes schools, yeah. Of course, sometimes schools, like, they'll cut a boys' program or a men's program, and they'll say, oh, yeah, it's because of Title IX, we had to. It drives me bananas when they say that. It's like, you know, I've got a son and two daughters, and if every time I couldn't afford to give my son what he wanted, if I blamed it on his sisters, he would hate them pretty quickly. <laughs> and, but instead, like for me to be like I'm the boss and I, and I take responsibility of how financially we're going to run the family. And just because he came first and just because he's a boy doesn't mean that he gets the lion's share of family resources. We're going to be fair here in this family and everybody's going to, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to give everybody what it is that, you know, hopefully, you know, but we, you know, we, we, we don't have unlimited resources and we can't give everybody what they need and we're going to share as a family. Athletic departments do the exact same thing. So they have a certain amount of budget mm-hmm. and they, you always have enough budget to be fair between boys and girls. Yeah. If you look at the history of Title IX, um, I, I, whenever I give speeches, I always have these graphs that show here's the sports participation rate in high school and college. And one of the things that I say, look at this, look at the graph numbers from 1971 all the way until the current day to day. And I want you to look at how these, the lines never move together. So in other words, women's, women are not gaining at the same time men are losing. So when women are doing well, so are men. Ideally, women would, would do well faster. So they would catch up and have this difference between boys and girls would would be erased yeah um, right now there's about 1.3 million kid gap between the what high schools uh high schools offer girls and boys mm-hmm. and um you know champion women's doing what it can do to try to stop that you know what, Nancy, we, but, uh, I hate to, uh, no, to cut you off. We came to the end of the show, yeah. and I just want to say thank you so oh. much. Keep up the good oh, work. Susan. Yeah. Thank you very much. If people want to go on to, and sign up at championwomen.org, mm-hmm. I would love to have them. Okay. And we, we'll put that information out there, that website, Nancy. Thank you so I much. It. Have okay. a gr- Have a great week, thank everyone. You, All right. Bye, everybody. Take care.